You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors, giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. For many of us, Christianity was a set of answers. We would change denominations or congregations when we became dissatisfied with those answers. We would seek another faith community where the answers made more sense to us. But in so doing, we strengthened the assumption that Christianity was about correct answers to a certain set of questions. What happens when you become disillusioned not only with the answers Christianity offers, but with the questions Christianity asks. What if other questions are becoming more important to you? For many of us, the big question that Christianity posed was how do you go to heaven when you die? And that question drew from an even deeper theological question. How can we resolve the problem of original sin or total depravity? Others of us may have been raised with a different question, the question of the prosperity gospel. How can God and the Bible help me make more money and be less sick and more successful? I remember years ago, a Salvation Army officer told me that he was having secret meetings with Catholic nuns and friars, and he was discovering Catholic mysticism. They were exploring a totally different question than the question he'd been raised with. These Catholic nuns and friars were asking, how can we experience God at the deepest levels of our being? When I've engaged with Christians of different traditions, I discovered that some of them were asking this question, how can the poor and the oppressed be liberated from oppression? How can the earth be saved from human greed? And how can human beings rejoin the earth community? What is a good life? And what does it look like now? What if Christianity is in the process of redefining itself, not in terms of its answers, but in terms of its questions? It would look very different. That's what we'll explore today. Listen as I read this quote from Do I Stay Christian? Like millions of people, I've moved out of the old universe into which my grandparents were born. I was raised in that world. I remember it, but I simply don't live there anymore. To have opinions about arguments based on the rules of that universe 
feels like being asked to vote in an election in a country in which I was born but no longer have citizenship. In the universe I inhabit, there aren't two eternal, fundamental, unchangeable categories, temporal versus eternal, physical versus spiritual, sacred versus secular, saved versus damned, perfect versus fallen, and so on. No, the cosmos is far more interesting, rich, and interconnected than that. I can try to explain it by offering a simple analogy drawn from my love of fly fishing. I'm standing in a stream and I cast my fly, which is a lure made of feathers and thread, to a seam in the water, a place where fast flowing water meets slower or still water. What is that seam? It certainly is not a set of atoms. Every second, one set of atoms is replaced by new ones. If we suddenly froze the stream to stop the atoms from moving, to capture that seam as in a photograph, the seam would no longer exist. That's because the seam, we might say, isn't a fixed and static thing. It's a pattern of things, a relation and flow of things. It is temporary contingent, more of an event than a thing. I look upstream and see a hump of water in front of a rock, another pattern or event. I see the stream itself, also an event. I look at the rounded rocks beneath my feet. Before the stream smoothed them, they were jagged boulders on a mountain, and before that, bedrock under the mountain, and before that, fluid magma deep beneath the earth, and before that, space dust drawn into orbit around the sun. What I see as a solid round rock is just one event in a long, long story. Then I look down to see my reflection in the water, and behold, I realize that I too am an event a flow, a pattern of relationships. I used to think that things were real and change was something that happened to them over time. Now I think that change is real and things are events that happen over time. Change is the constant and things come and go, appear and disappear, form and fade away. It is my great joy to be here with uh, Dr. B and with Jim. I want to say, uh, Dr. B, a great joy for me of being part of the CAC faculty has been getting to know you. Your books, Race in the Cosmos, Joy Unspeakable, Crisis Contemplation, felt like a hybrid between scholarship and poetry. <laughs> I love your podcast, The Cosmic We. And I wonder if you could just tell everyone two things about you that they may not already know, one personal, one professional in either order. Well, I've had many incarnations. And so um, before I was a kindergarten teacher, before I knew who I wanted to be, I was a member of Actors' Equity, the Screen Actors Guild. 
I performed with Samuel Jackson, who's going to be honored this year, and the Oscars um, with his wife, Latanya Richardson, and for color girls who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough in the Atlanta version. And I also performed with Leonard Bernstein in Austria. So... That's one incarnation as kindergarten teacher, attorney, actor. (laughs) And personally, um, I enjoy ice fishing. I learned how to do it in Minnesota. Oh, my goodness. Those are two things I didn't expect. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, uh, Jim, um, I'm going to ask the same question of you in just a minute. But I should say, after I the first time I heard you speak live, I'd seen many of your talks online. But the first time I heard you speak live uh, a couple years ago at a CAC event or several years ago, I texted my wife and I said, um, if I were to list 10 of the best lectures I've ever heard in my life, I just heard two of them. <laughs> I read and and uh, reread your book, Merton's Palace of Nowhere. And I was so deeply moved by the, the draft I had a chance to read of the memoir that you're working on now. But I wonder if you could tell folks uh, two things about yourself that they maybe don't already know. I don't know. I, we can't have a competition because it'd be impossible to beat Barbara's, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, I haven't, I don't have that repertoire. <laughs> uh, I, I say t- things about me personally. I say personally for me, to they're age-related things. One is I've not read anything contemporary for 10 years. I've not read any of Richard's books, I've not read yours. I just haven't read anything for 10 years. I'm immersed in these texts, yes. these mystics, and, and certain the philosophical theology of medieval, of, of Augustine and Aquinas. And I read them over and over and over. I just don't. I have a big library here. I, so that's one thing. So something. And the second thing is, is that my oldest daughter has a daughter who has three children. So my oldest daughter is their grandmother which makes me a great-grandfather and kind of a multi-generational old guy who doesn't read anything anymore. <laughs> and, that, and that's my claim. To, uh, but I, I play a violin with one string on it. You know, it's a sense of mystical consciousness and where it touches trauma and uh, the lineage of these traditions. And so I'll, I'll share that. Well, that's beautiful. All I can recommend, I can just picture you sitting in Minnesota on a frozen lake, ice fishing and reading Aquinas. That puts it together somehow. Oh, <laughs> for yeah. me. For, wow. <laughs> for me, maybe yeah. someday I'll get to fish with Barbara and her husband. Maybe it might happen. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Well, just a bit of background. In uh, Learning How to See, uh, the first two seasons, we looked at bias. And and in many ways, bias is like, uh, for someone like me who wears glasses, it's like trying to take off your glasses and look at them to see how many scratches and smudges and cracks you have that are distorting your view. It's not easy to do. Seeing is harder than it looks. <laughs> what happened in our first couple of, uh, after those first couple of seasons, so many of the questions that we received were questions about Christian faith, where people were saying, you know, I feel like my own Christian faith has helped me see some things, and it's made it harder for me to see other things. And now I'm, I wanted to take a look at, at my own 
uh, Christian faith. Both of you grew up in religious families to some degree. And Jim, you grew up Catholic. Uh, Dr. B, you grew up uh, Protestant. And I wonder if you can recall any experiences, maybe some of your earliest experiences, where you thought the version I inherited of Christianity isn't helping me right now. Does any examples of that come to mind? Maybe I, I could start with you, Dr. B. Well, it wasn't just uh, whether or not Christianity was helping me. I couldn't see that it was helping anybody because I grew up um, right on the cusp of the civil rights movement. And so um, as a family, we knew that our protection was held within our own tight community, but that we didn't fit into the larger community. And the Christian story didn't help that at all, not one bit. And those who were Anglo who professed to be Christians didn't seem to have any better mantras or way of living than anyone else. So I couldn't really see where anything that the Christian story held could help with the larger community's healing, safety, and survival. And yet there was a trickster element to it that kept me intrigued. And when I say trickster element, I mean the enigma of the cross is enough to keep folks who are oppressed, whose backs are against the wall, wondering what God will do next. That is so, so well put. But this dominant sense that for the white majority here in the U.S., their form of Christianity was, if anything, giving them permission to make your life and the lives of your community worse. But maybe there was some little twist there that could be of help. Yes, there was a certain liminality. There was a way of living in the world with folks who you knew did not love you, and yet being able to have a perspective that gave you insight, gave you the ability to write, to think, to do poetry, to dance, to rejoice. You had more perspectives on the world because you didn't believe the framework that had been offered to you. So, you knew that wasn't the framework. You didn't know what the framework was, <laughs> but you knew that wasn't it. Yes, this is a this is a game that's uh, that's rigged against me. But in a sense, that little distance gives you some vantage point to see the game in a way that that people who it's working for might not even see it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to hear how you'd answer that question, Jim. Were there points where you said the the form of Christianity that I inherited, it's not helping me? Well, I think two things for me, two points with that. I guess my first experience, when I was growing up, I was oldest of six children. My father was a violent alcoholic. And um, one of my very first experiences is lying in bed at night, listening to my father beat my mother outside the door. And um, father wanted my mother to pray to ask God to give me the strength to get through this. And I, as I was lying there in the dark, I sensed that God merged with me in some unexplainable way, where God became tangibly real, like God's presence was sustaining me. I found also that when I made my first communion, seven years old, as I did receive the Eucharist, I'd go back and kneel down and put my face in my hands and hold real, real still. 
I can remember feeling because I was inside the church, I was inside of God and having received the Eucharist, God was inside of me. And I told real, real still, inside of God, inside of me. And I felt that was the gate of heaven. And then I felt when I would listen to the sermons and things in church, I couldn't find anyone talking about that. So then when I was 14 and discovered Thomas Merton, the journal he wrote at the monastery, he was talking about that. And so that drew me to the monastery, and I spent six years there, cloistered monastery. It had a very profound effect on me. Then when I was sexually abused there by one of the monks, I had kind of a breakdown on my trauma came back. And I left the church. I, I kind of just dropped out of the whole thing. I became disheartened. But then I, I found I had, a, like, mercy. Like, we're all we're infinitely love broken people. And uh, I found my way back to discover this mercy of God on all of us in our brokenness. And so then when I got my doctorate in clinical psychology, that's where I started touching, where trauma and transcendence touch each other, you know, and transformation, healing. And so that's been my, I would say that's been my thing. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to test a hypothesis here. It, it seems to me you had this powerful, direct experience of God at such a young age that sustained you, um, that it, it's almost as if whatever Catholicism was saying, a lot of it didn't match up with that experience. And, and obviously later when you were traumatized, it contradicted that. But it's almost as if it, it sounds like somehow you were able to sort of brush aside an awful lot of that, those distractions. You knew what the real thing was from an early age. Is that, am I saying that right? Yes, I, I'd put it this way. You know how I put it? You know, at the Last Supper, uh, there was a traitor at the table. Things weren't off to a good start. <laughs> it's, always, it's always been a messy, broken, <laughs> beautiful, uh, brutal, kind of terrible place. Yes. And uh, Thomas Merton once said in one of his talks to the novices, he said, you know, a lot of Catholics are losing their faith, and they're losing it in church because the church isn't teaching its own, you know, that we're God's beloved, that God God's infinite presence is presencing itself as every breath and heartbeat. And, and we can be healed from what hinders us from living in that. And I found that to be so true. If I could cut through, not get caught up in these very real concerns, they're real. But first become contemplatively grounded in God, grounded in me. I could then face those dilemmas from that vantage point. Rather than trying to sift it all out from the vantage point of, you know, that's been part of my thing. And I found that true in psychotherapy, too, in spiritual direction, where people are trying to get to the heart of the matter, you know, this kind of vulnerable, tender place, and the light that shines out, and the light shines in the darkness, and that guides us through life. And it's always been my, the feeling tone of it for me. I hadn't ever really thought of this before, but it strikes me that both of your experience, in a sense, take place against a backdrop of of abuse, uh, the social abuse of a of a white supremacy that was baked into institutions and culture and psychology of uh, of so many people, and that white supremacy almost functioning like alcohol functioned in your family, where it it infected one person and then ended up touching everyone uh, and, and traumatizing everyone. 
In another way, your contexts were very, very different. I guess we just sit back and see when people talk about Christianity, each one has their own story, their own vantage point, their own experience. But one thing that seems to be widely shared, well, maybe I should say two things that are widely shared. One is that there are a whole bunch of people who are totally happy with a form of Christianity they inherited. They don't seem to have any doubts or second thoughts. They're proud to be associated with it. They really, any problems seem to be one bad apple, but the rest of it's all good. And then there are another whole group of people who just say, this thing is not helping me. This thing is not good for the world. It's almost like we, we, we have a whole lot of people who are totally in on this thing. And a lot of people are saying, yeah, this doesn't seem to be working. And it seems to actually be a problem. Does that resonate with, with what you, you see? It resonates. Uh with me, um, because the whole Christian story is a story that we didn't write. We're not even the main characters in it most of the time, if you're humble enough. And so my questions were not about the overarching story and what it meant from my life, but about purpose and gift and why I was here and how much time I had to accomplish what I came here to do and how I would do that. And so the questions were questions I turned into myself. They were not questions I could pose to the majority culture because I wouldn't get the answers I needed. I posed those questions to myself and my my parents taught me, ask yourself why you're here. Ask yourself what the purpose is. What can you give? How can you give best? What is the best of who you are? And so when you're focused on those kinds of questions, you don't have as much time to worry about the political questions, the uh, dehumanization questions. You know they're there. You know you have to stand up against it and resist. But the primary question is, how do you get further in this story that is a story nested within other stories? Mm -hmm. And that very personal story of how am I going to live? What is my calling? Where do I invest my energies? Right. But it, it is not an individual I. It is an I interwoven with community. Because everything I did as an African-American woman was going to reflect at that time, not so much now. It was going to reflect on the community. Yes. I think that's a really important insight. When uh, Jim and I were growing up, white people being in the majority had this sort of luxury of individualism. We could think about our, our own individual lives. That option wasn't even on the table for African-Americans and many others who are were constantly under a gaze where they were the representatives of, of other people and their behavior could reflect negatively on other people that would only intensify the mistreatment. That's right. Even though it was community, um, Bernice um, Johnson Reagan says famously, everybody during a revolution had to say I. So this little light of mine, I'm going to be part of the revolution. I'm going to be part. You couldn't hide under the we, the collective we. Are you going to betray us? Are you going to betray us? You had to say I, I. And those individual eyes create community, but they don't allow you to hide under the collective where no one is responsible.
my goodness, there's just so much to think about how that relates. We can think about how that relates to race and politics, but it really does relate to a person identifying, I'm Roman Catholic, I'm Southern Baptist, I'm Pentecostal, I'm Eastern Orthodox, whatever. Uh, the way that the, the we that we join becomes, for some of us, becomes a way of avoiding ever having to answer the I question. I'm just doing what my group does. I'm just thinking what my group thinks. But there are other times where it has the opposite uh, effect. But when I listen to an awful lot of people who are struggling with Christian identity right now, what I hear them saying is that the answers the Christian faith gave me to the questions the Christian faith told me to ask are unsatisfactory. Sometimes it's answers, uh, for example, you know, how old is the earth? And I grew up in a fundamentalist setting where we had to answer the earth is about 6,000 years old because we added all the genealogies in the Bible and they came to up to uh, about 4,000 uh, years, so 2,000 years since then. And so for me as a young kid, I just thought, I can't believe that. The earth is way older than that. There's so much evidence for that. So I became dissatisfied with the answers I was given. But then later, what happened to me as a when I was a pastor and I was preaching from the Bible every Sunday, I realized that the number one question that I was asked by my Christian upbringing was, how do I go to heaven when I die? How do I get my sins forgiven so my original sin gets uh, legally taken care of so I can go to heaven when I die? And I realized that's really not the question that anybody in the Bible was asking. <laughs> And and suddenly I was dissatisfied, not only with the answer, but also with the question. I'd love to hear any reflections either of you have on that. Uh, you know, something that's helped me is um, to say where the faith community has has offered these answers. And then we we take it in and which ones we like and agree with, don't agree with. And, you know, we try to sort all this out. And I, I, think, I think that Richard Rohr, the, the idea of the emerging church, is, is always going back, is what, what's the question that Jesus asked us? Like to cut to the chase, you know, to get to the, what is it? And and one way I look at it, if we just sit with Jesus, put it that way, like heart to heart. So where Jesus says, follow me, and we see where he's taking us is to the cross, like Barbara was saying, the cross. And I understand the cross to be a metaphor for the crucifixion of our cherished and dreaded illusions, that anything less than an infinite union with the infinite love of God will ever put to rest the restless longings of our heart. And also to know, to die to the idolatry of attainment, is if somehow God's love for us is measured by the extent to which we or anybody else is living up to it. Rather, it accesses us and takes us to itself in the midst of our inability to live up to it, which is experiential salvation. And then grounded in that, then how can I share that with other people? So another big thing for me with Thomas Merton, when I was there, this is during the 60s, the Vietnam War, so he wrote a book called um, uh, Seeds of Destruction. It was pro-Dr. Martin Luther King, anti-Vietnam, anti-nuclear war movement. The Berrigan brothers came there to visit him. Thich Nhat Hanh came there to visit him. I, I found out, I just found out a few months ago, that Dr. Martin Luther King was scheduled to come see him at Gethsemane. He was killed just before he 
was to go. And he wrote another book called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. And that's where he saw that the, the true contemplative withdraws from the world at one level to be more radically one with it at another level. And they were all woven into each other. We're all siblings of this infinite love. And uh, so those are some connotations to me that have meant a lot to me. See, unfortunately, most of our questions are formed around the myopic issues of our day, uh, our culture, our current crisis. And they often um, reflect our own ego need to resolve and to control. And we may have just reached an end for those sorts or types of questions. My questions echo into deep mystery. I'm not sure that there is anything but echo when you are delving the very essence of what it means to be alive, what it means to be faithful. In our family, even though Christianity doesn't answer the questions, God is. And so that was a reality that didn't require answers. God is. God may not do what God is supposed to do or what you think God is supposed to do, but God is. And there is a reality toward that. There is hope in that. There is grounding in that. And so there is always a way out of no way when God is. Jim, when, you, uh, when you're describing, and I think all of us can feel it when you talk, this encounter with the infinite love of God that that begins with a, a frightened young boy who is hearing things that no young boy should have to hear and and witnessing things that nobody should have to witness this direct encounter in a sense made so much of the arguments in the religious world seem much much less important and for you barbara this sense whatever is meant, all that's held in that phrase, God is, there's this encounter, there's this reality that makes an awful lot of other things seem unimportant. I think if people were allowed to say, oh, that's what Christianity is supposed to be about, they might, in a sense, find a way around this, this frustration that, that is thrown at them every time they show up at mass or every time they show up at church where they're being asked, to be against this group of people or to always support this political party or whatever it is, they would be, they would sense, oh, this is a higher level discussion entirely. I wonder if part of what we're, all, all of us, are, the three of us, but so many other people as well, are struggling with is the possibility that instead of looking for answers and certainty, what we're looking for is some deeper reality, some deeper experience that is less about answers and certainty and more about the questions that preoccupy us. And if that makes sense, let me venture that, Jim, the pre one of the preoccupying questions of your life, maybe the preoccupying question of your life has been, how do I enter and stay and enjoy that deep, deep communion with the infinite love of God. Would that be a, a fair way to say it? Yeah, in a sense, yes. I, I would say, I was, I was listening to you and Barbara talking to you, thinking about, uh, Thomas Merton once said, he said, in the spiritual order of things, to understand is to know that you're infinitely understood. 
uh, he once said about the monks in the monastery, he said, there isn't a single monk in this monastery who knows why he's here. And if he thinks he knows why he's here, he doesn't know why he's here. Because we're here because God loves us. And there's moments we're touched by this in our heart. There's moments of communion. So it just isn't that the answers fall away. But in a certain sense, the question falls away. You know, there's a certain moment where it's just infinite love in all directions, unexplainably, like through and through and through and through and through. And the issue is, is that our, we live in a traumatized capacity to abide in that, that love alone pervades all things endlessly in all directions. And in our heart, we know it's true. There's moment that we taste it. We desire, how do I abide in that? So that by being transformed in it, I might habitually see it everywhere. That's the, the task, I think. Because when we're traumatized or upset, the density and intensity of the trauma or the cruelty, it like closes off access to this love alone that is ultimately real. So I'm always trying to sink the taproot of my heart in this one love unfolding itself everywhere. And which transcends the darkness of this world not to be carried off away from the world, but to radicalize my present in it. And that's how Jesus lived. Jesus walked this earth. You have eyes to see and you don't see. You don't see uh, the infinite love of God shining out and standing up and sitting down, your brother, your sister. So I, I see it that way. I'm to abide in it, but to abide in it in a way that radicalizes my oneness with uh, the holiness of everybody and everything. We're all... We're all trying to find our way here. And how can I be true to my path so that in my presence, others might find it somewhat easier to see it in their life and pass it on to other people. Barbara, as you're listening, I'm watching the gears turned. What goes through your mind as you're listening to Jim there? I'm thinking about the old Billy Graham crusades and the song, Just As I Am Without One Plea. And I used to think of God, I, I'd be in the house and my mother and father would be listening to Billy Graham on the radio. And I would think in terms of God's call to me, God's question to me, will you come? And how I would physically embody a response. Western culture is always um, think in terms of question and answer and written language. And those cultures that were completely oral are disregarded. But maybe the question that God is asking doesn't require an answer. Maybe it requires a song or a poem or a dance. Maybe it's not the epistemology we're most comfortable with in the West. Maybe it requires just a breath in response. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash o-n-e-i-n-g-a-r-t. 
that phrase, the, it's not just that the answers fall away, the questions fall away. And this sense that there's a response that is a whole body response. It's, it doesn't leave out the mind, but it's not just the mind, it's the body. And it actually, that evokes that quote that I know we're all familiar with from a letter that uh, Rainer uh, Maria Rilke uh, wrote to a young poet, I think close to 100 years ago. He wrote, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. My goodness, there's so much we could talk about just there. And then he goes on and says, do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. And I picture uh, the, the idea of you live with a question and you don't answer it, you dance it <laughs> and mm -hmm. you cook it. And you uh, it's, it's something that invites your vitality. It's what makes you come alive as you respond to that question. Yes. Jim, your life as a spiritual director and therapist has brought you to have to listen to people who come to you with questions and problems. And I'd love to just hear, how have you learned how to respond to people in that they're coming to you with a big question or a big problem and they're looking, maybe you feel they're paying you money to help them get an answer. I love this quote. I often share it when retreats on Merton and sees a contemplation. He says, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The silence of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. He says, we don't have to go very far to catch glimpses of this dancing when we are alone on a starlit night, when we know love in our own heart, when we see children in a moment, they're really children. See, it like flashes forth. In another passage, he says, Beginners have a lot of questions, and they're looking for someone to answer the question, as well they should. But they get into it, they realize you're all along, God's the one asking the question. And they don't know the answer to God's question. They don't even understand the question. See? So I think there's certain <laughs> moments, you know, we fall in love, or we have a child, where somebody dies, like the rains fall from our hands. And just for that brief moment, there's a luminous quality that shines forth. And the ego always tries to close the gap again by generating more. We almost keep generating this need for answers to hide from what we're looking for. We're trying to free ourselves from that. So what I have found in therapy, what happens is two things. One, as I say, to risk sharing what hurts the most in the presence of someone who will not invade you or abandon you. You can learn not to invade or abandon yourself. That's true. You can be reparented into this love that from the very first moment you were born, you deserved and didn't get, you can find it. But deeper down, Jesus talked about the pearl at great price. In the very midst of sharing the painful thing, you can taste for yourself the invincible preciousness of yourself. Thomas Merton says, there is that in us that is not subject to the brutalities of our own will, nor is it subject to the brutalities of what anyone can do to us, because it's that in us that belongs completely to God. And a person in the vulnerability of healing very painful things, all of a sudden there's a pause 
and their preciousness shines out. Do I mean it's like a self-authenticating depth of themselves, and they can learn to stabilize in it and draw up from it the courage to walk through their story. And I've seen that over and over and over again, like the depth dimension of a. And, and you end up with the healing, end up more than you bargained for, and you you walk away from it wiser about life and fragility and gratitude and all things that, you know. In that sense, the presenting problem, I'm coming to see a therapist because I'm in the middle of a divorce. I'm coming to see you because I'm struggling with depression. I'm coming to see you because I've lost my sixth job in six years. Maybe there's something wrong with me and not with all those bosses. And I, I come to see you and I have the problem I'm coming with, but maybe the problem is is the excuse that gets us into uh, the presence of someone who won't invade us or abandon us. And in that relationship comes the, the healing. Yeah, here's how I put it too, often happens, is that um, if you come to see me for therapy, you come with the presenting problem and you talk and I listen. And at a certain point I say to you, I wanna ask you a question so I can understand better what you're saying. And it's a real question. And my question is such, you can't answer without pausing to listen to yourself, to know what to say. And in that moment, you're more present to yourself in my presence. And already the union starts. And when you share it with me, I share it back. We go a little closer and I say, well, if that's true, I have another question. And pretty eventually we get close to the hurting place. And we know it because you'll tear up or you'll laugh when you say something sad or you'll look away. And I'll say, you know, if we move too fast, you'll get re-traumatized. But if we don't get close enough to touch it with love, we can't heal it. So what would make it safe in here? So in a paced way, you might find your way to yourself. And I think that's where the pearl of great price opens up, the tenderness of that exchange. And I think this goes on in marriages with children. Sometimes this sort of all gets abused too. But you really know people despair or go deeper. They despair or go deeper in this willingness to constantly sift out the heart with these kind of sensitivities. I'm thinking about how fragile everything is. And that that may just be the order of things. And why do we require the delusion that things are solid and and static and that they're going to reach a goal? Why can't we embrace the fragility of life, its brokenness? Why can't we admit that we don't have questions, we don't have answers, and sometimes all you have is lament or the moan or the cry or the uttering of the spirit on your behalf because you don't know what to say or you don't know what to do? I think my life would have been more meaningful if I had embraced more fragility. I clung to the illusion that things were the way that I thought they should be. I would go here, I would get this education, I would get that job, I would accomplish this. But in fact, every second is a moment of fragility that is a miracle that contains all of the questions and all of the answers. And why can't we dance with that? We're recording this conversation uh, on the 14th day uh, of the invasion of Ukraine. And last night, I had the 
television on and you know they're doing all these interviews with people who are either in Ukraine or escaping from Ukraine and there was a, a woman who they had on on the screen who uh, said something like this look up at the sky and if there aren't bombs falling realize how precious that moment is and then she's crying and she says peace is so valuable and peace is so vulnerable and when she put those two words together of course in, in the middle of the the experiencing of it it was it it was you know incredibly moving and insightful moment peace is so vulnerable and so valuable simultaneously and this maybe is what is that really the heart that we're looking for is from everything from religion from music from going to a therapist from taking a course from listening to a podcast someone who helps us see that preciousness and vulnerability and immeasurable value of each moment it's the questions aren't something we have to answer there's something that evoke life uh, evoke life from us as you think about people as we bring this conversation uh, to to a close for now as you think about people who are really tortured because they inherited a faith that they were told their eternal destiny depends upon them believing certain things, practicing certain things, saying certain things. They've been taught it's so important for them to be good boys and girls, good men and women, and they're finding it's not working or they're finding it seems like a dead end or they're finding it makes them be dishonest or cruel or whatever. Is there anything that comes to your heart that you want to say to their heart, you know, to help them get in touch with, with this vulnerable, valuable gift and, and experience that we've been talking about. And having sat with people in these moments, I've been there myself. There's a, I say it in, in one sense, you know, the very fact this troubles you already bears witness that you know better. If you didn't know better, it wouldn't bother you. You'd be, you'd be fine with it, but you're not. And so secondly, where could you find a place where you can trust your own heart and listen to it and find encouragement? And um, what were directions you could move in in which you could trust within yourself this is a qualitatively better place? You know, it's more humble, it's more gracious, it has more depth to it, and it's more true to the heart of Jesus, it's more true in the Christian tradition. It's good you're troubled, because it means you're, you're already, a light shines in the darkness, and you can see it. And so if you could follow it out, believe in yourself, and connect the dots with other people, kindred spirits, and help the person find like where they might go to find that. And I think this podcast, for example, all these podcasts, The Living School, there's other faith communities they're very encouraged, you know, prophetically deep, compassionate, engaged communities of people. And uh, how do we sense our residence with them and find out ways to uh, live that in ourselves? Oh, beautifully said. Thanks, Jim. I would also say that there is within a reflective voice 
internal that responds that you can ask without asking the questions that have no answers. And within yourself, you'll know, you'll know what reflects the God light and what does not. Not that there's any purity ritual, not that there is a right and a wrong um, to a lifestyle or a way of being. There's just an inner reflection of God light that I call God light that directs a path even when you can't see where you're going. So for our family, it's always been in the mysteries, the ancestral mysteries, the dreams, the premonitions, the whispers, uh, things that you can't grasp, but that are very real nonetheless. Beautifully said. Jim, one of the things that I know was significant in your own development, and Thomas Merton and others actually, I think, helped you uh, go in this direction, was in your own contemplative and, and personal journey, you found help from Buddhists and you help, found help from other contemplative and mystical traditions outside of Christianity. And Barbara, I know from reading your work that science provided, I'm sure other religious traditions uh, helped you as well, but your interest in cosmology and in deep time and in, in thinking about the, the scientific realities and grandeur of the universe, it helped put things in different perspective for you. And I'd love to hear from, if there's anything you would want to share about how this these sort of vantage points or connections outside of traditional uh, Catholicism or traditional Protestantism have helped you. Yeah, anything you can say about that? Cosmology helped me to understand what my aunties were doing when they were prophesying and giving us messages from dead relatives. It's all conjuring. The scientists may say that they have facts, but they only had the facts that they have... <laughs> discerned from the instruments they've developed. But there's, I mean, let's think about it. In reality, science is still just conjuring. And so if you're going to conjure, I'm going to use all the tools I can find. I don't just want the wisdom of the elders. I also want deep space, black holes, um, astronomical um, realities. I want to put it all together in a mix. I want to know what the Lakota think. I want to dance with Sufis. I want to know what the mysteries of the earth are. I won't be able to solve it, but I want all of the pieces in the pot. And so I've spent my life gathering them. I don't know where I am in the journey, but I'm still gathering. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. For me, another thing I learned from Thomas Merton is that, um, he, he read some of the writings of D.T. Suzuki, the Zen scholar. And in his book, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, it was his letter to Suzuki. And he said, uh, when I read your writings, these Zen stories about awakening, something in me leaps off the page and says, this is true. And I'd like to know if I, as a Christian, can dialogue with you about this common ground. 
he wrote the same things to the Sufis. In fact, the same thing, this, this, this mystical sweet surrender, you know, uh, of um, turning around this hidden axis, like the whirling dervish hidden around this hidden axis of love and being trend, Rumi and Hafiz and so on. And uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, the Jewish philosopher and mystic, came to Gethsemane to see him. And the Protestant ministers used to come on weekends to talk with Merton. He said, we have so much to learn from each other and dialogue, because when we learn more about the depth of other traditions, it enriches our appreciation of our own tradition. Like this. So I've been, I've been deeply affected by the Dharma uh, over the years, especially Dogen's work and, uh, and these other traditions, because they're like a polyphony of voices. At the surface level, you see the harmonics of discord, fundamentalistic arguing with each other. But the more it gets closer to the heart center, you see this deep resonance, like um, dialects of divine love expressed through time and cultures and history. And I think this is the direction to go. Thomas Merton once said, if more people who seek this and have found it would bear witness to the unity, religion could be a source of saving the world instead of all too often tribal conflict where religion is used as a language to destroy the world. And so I think there's a big question, this contemplative ecumenism. Well, he said the unfortunate thing about a lot of Christian missionary work is often the Christian missionaries failed to realize that people they were converting were in some instances as holy or more holy than they were. And uh, if we could all be humbled and meet each other and share our languages of the divine with each other, we could move the world in toward a new unitive place. When I put together all of these insights, I, I come back to something you said a while ago, Jim, that when people are dissatisfied with their religious uh, system as they've inherited it, the fact that they're dissatisfied means that they, they already know something uh, and there's something in them that sees. And, and uh, for us to let that draw us deeper into the mystery and the delight. I found something else too say as a Catholic people leave the church I left the church for a while too it's when they leave it for a while they realize they're homesick for the lineage of their origin and they circle back and find it at a deeper level this mystical level blessed are the poor in spirit and the love of God and so on they come back and re-celebrate it at a deeper level that often happens well thank you so much we're uh uh, dancing in the mystery together, and we're living the questions together. Thank you so much. Please let these words from the uh, poet Rainer Maria Rilke, uh, let them resound and echo within you as I read them slowly now. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything Live the questions now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, 
live along some distant day into the answer. I want to thank Jim Finley and Dr. Barbara Holmes for their wonderful and rich conversation. I want to thank the Center for Action and Contemplation, all the wonderful work they do for the staff and uh, just this beautiful team that's come together. And a special thanks to Corey Pig, the producer of this program, who is such a joy to work with. And I want to sincerely thank each of you for listening for letting happen inside of you whatever is happening. And I look forward to seeing you uh, for the next episode. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.